Hey, this is Dag, and you're listening to Beyond Trek Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Trek Podcast. I'm your host, Big J, here with Renzo. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Picard, episode three of season two, Assimilation. Picard and the crew travel back to 2024 Los Angeles to try to find the Watcher. So I think that we're going to just dive right into this episode, which has a lot of lot of tone of Star Trek four. So Renzo, what do you say we just jump right in? Spoiler. 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 Absolutely. So this episode picks off exactly where the last one left off. There is no like time pass and they think, nope, right back to the confet, uh, yep. the magistrate holding everybody at gunpoint with his little security team. Um, so we get this great scene where the Confederation magistrate and his like mooks are holding weapons on Picard and team. Uh, Raffi tries to go help Elnor and she is dissuaded from doing so by getting weapons pointed at her uh the magistrate is getting them all to disarm themselves he repeats the confederation's little mantra of a safe galaxy is a human galaxy and like is trying to get them to admit that they're not the the original ones that they're from this galaxy or from this from this timeline um, but you caught on pretty quickly to that yeah i mean it, this goes back to the whole discussion we had last episode about how it's easier for a civilized person to, to pretend to be a barbarian than the vice versa yeah. but even then you can still get caught right um so seven of nine tries to do this whole shtick about how this is a classified operation i'm the president you don't you're not cleared to understand this <laughs> stand down you this you can't know what this is about the magistrate's not convinced so nice not, try yeah it's certainly, I think, more plausible than Gerardi's little explanation from last episode, which I loved, mind you, but it was It was Gerardi. It was Gerardi far-fetched. I loved it. Um, so, yeah, the the magistrate challenges Seven with this question of, what is my real name? And <laughs> she's got no clue. Uh, but how does she miss that? Did, did she really miss that during this whole time that she was? I know it was a brief time. But I don't know. To, to me, I would think that that's some little detail that Seven might have had gleaned, come up with. But I could be wrong. It was a lot of touch and go there, just trying to trying to navigate through. But mm, I don't know. My guess is that it's something along the lines of his name on paper is something like ted cruz but his real name is rafael cruz or something <laughs> and not everybody knows that that's his real full name right so maybe it's something to that effect he's his the name that he goes by is not his real full name and that's what his wife would know yep. and uh seven just never had the chance to like read up on this guy's like detailed bio oh, yeah so it was it was a good catch there he had her dead to rights dead to rights but speaking of dead to rights uh rios and raffi are great at hand to hand they disarm the magistrate security team they don't pull punches there's nothing no, there's no phaser set to stun on this it is set to vaporize yes and all of them go out dirty um <laughs> quickly i like their hand-to-hand -hand skills i i really do and mm -hmm. it's something that I think every Starfleet officer, and I'm glad that these new shows 
are really showing this, uh, especially remember last season in Discovery when those uh, dilithium thieves were on the on the one ship with the uh, and the commander, the first officer caught him, and he went toe to toe with three uh, Azatfosh nuns, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, caught Malat nuns. That's uh, jeez, caught Malat. Yes, and that's what I like seeing out of Starfleet officers, like very very adept at hand-to-hand and fast and it makes sense too right yeah. like they they've been trained in this we've seen Worf has his whole hollow programs of various different styles Tasha Yar had hers right like mm-hmm. if you're going to be involved in high levels of Starfleet you've been trained so that was right. good uh but yeah so the scene ends with uh all three of the confederate people dead vaporized and then uh Raffi and Picard try to tell him to Elnor, who is very quickly dying. They try moving. They take him to sick bay uh, while he orders Rios to get them out of this damn place, mm-hmm. which is good call. Get out of orbit of Earth while you're carrying like hostage. They think the president. So, yeah. So the their storyline may have been holding up a little more, but still it's time to get the hell out of here because, of course, they're going to get chased soon. Yep. So Seven and uh, Rafi are in sickbay in the next scene, and they are trying to treat uh, Elnor, but they can't find where all the medical kits are. The ship is not there, La Sirena. This is this right. universe of La Sirena, so they don't know where everything is. Okay, that's all pretty plausible. Uh, Seven finds some dermaline pads, which will stop the bleeding until they can stabilize them. They're just like a patch that you stick on top of something that like seals mm-hmm. it in ideally right. makes sense. That's a good way to buy yourself some time. Uh, and then we get what's in my background where we get some ships from the Confederation fleet attacking the La Sirena. That and was we get awesome. A delightful shot of some old favorite Starfleet ships once again in Star Trek, which is nice. We get a pair of Nova class ships and we get the steam runner over here too, yep. which it's been a while since we've seen them and I'm glad that they're back. Me too. And they look really nice now, updated like this with the uh, the special effects they have now. And that yep. was good pick. The names of the ships, I think, uh-huh. are actually the really cool bit here. Oh, okay. So this isn't something that was shown on the scene. This is something that was released by David Blass, who's the production designer for the show. Right. So the names of the, th- the three ships are the USS Quinn, the USS Doherty, and the USS Layton. All three <laughs> are badmirals from Star Trek's past. Yeah, and so it was cool that they uh, brought them back that way. It's Bad a good. Mills, that's awesome. It's a good deep cut. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so the thing that I find really interesting here, though, is any one of these three ships should have sufficient firepower to like blow up the La Sirena or disable it at the very least. Yep. But they're not looking to kill, right? They're looking to capture the ship because they think their president is on this thing. They don't know exactly what's going on. They just know that the president is on this, and so is General Picard. What is going on? can't blow them up have to try and capture them so that's probably why they're pulling their punches in case anybody's concerned about like these ships are being uh uh underpowered for their for their role i I thought so because you're right it is very unrealistic that three starfleet ships could not take down the la serena i agree and you make a good point i wasn't really thinking about that when i was watching it but it is a they're pulling their punches they don't know what's going on beyond our president and top general have been captured. Yeah, they went up with a Romulan. What is going on? There was just this massive attack in Okinawa. Like yep. they're probably like quite on 
a hair trigger for anything weird, especially because it's eradication day and all the security measures are there, but they probably aren't in shoot to kill mode because their president is there. So mm-hmm. cool. Uh, so they're running away from this fleet and uh, they call for seven to come back up from sick bay. She leaves Elnor with, with Raffi uh, and it doesn't look good for Elnor at all. Uh, at this point, Picard actually sits down in one of the, the, bridge stations and mm-hmm. Hugh appears and says to him and only to him because nobody else can see him this is the only kind of life you understand shall we see what else has been lost in the wake of your fear which to me this is a this is a hint as to what he's doing what his lesson is going to be I think it's further evidence of the theory that I presented last episode yep. where like the whole mistake is being afraid of things like being afraid of that board queen and not giving her the chance to like do what she was trying mm-hmm. to do but still just me pontificating and theorizing here Fear uh, and shooting is yeah. it seems like what what q is trying to point out to picard this is what you know this is the life you're familiar with mm-hmm. so this whole time even during the scene with the shooting and with the magistrate officers gerardi has been in the back of the ship trying to plug the board queen into mm-hmm. the ship's uh warp core into the ship's like mainframe the systems yeah uh and at this moment the ship is hit uh, and the Borg Queen cylinder just kind of goes plop. <laughs> it was that thing I, was not secure. I laughed. I'm not gonna lie. Um, just the idea of something as terrifying and, and imposing as a Borg Queen just like face planting. Worth <laughs> the laughs. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. That was that was a good one. You think she would have been a little more secure than she was, but maybe that was that was all they had. And the face planning that was great yeah uh Girardi also has a really good line about how uh she's trying to figure out a way to slingshot through a silver fur without being incinerated so the last thing i want to hear is then we hear picard say hurry up and that's yeah. exactly what she didn't want to hear so it was it was a good bit there uh cut back to rios uh getting a lock on the, the one of the nova class ships and fires at a starboard nacelle we see an explosion don't think it was destroyed but probably pretty damaged uh, and they hoping they, that it wasn't a one shot kill kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, it didn't look like it to be honest. Uh, it just looked like it took a good hit to their nacelle, yeah. which fair fair warning is a pretty deadly place to hit hard. We've seen that with the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, they keep running. Uh, the queen crawls towards Gerardi. Gerardi backs up terrified and panicked, and then she goes allow me and then these tendrils come up out of her neck and out of her back plug her into the ship and she starts taking control of the ship systems we see that from all the computer panels having like borgy greenness on them Mm -hmm. and she locks on and enhances the weapons and fires them green now because borg and that hits the nova the other nova and the steamer class and those explosions are bigger and if you're talking about like borg enhancements i'm willing to buy that that's a destructive like one shot kill yeah yeah it, that that's something i i won't waste a whole lot of time on but i'm not a big fan of suddenly when the plot needs it to that one torpedo to a ship with full shields is enough to destroy it but you know we know the borg are pretty good at like fucking sure. our shields though right so maybe mm-hmm. she just skipped through their shields like a polar on torpedo or something just polar on weapons from the dominion just straight through the shields and right into the looking to deflector dishes in both cases to be honest so yeah anyways yeah. uh so those both ships are disabled and left behind or destroyed and left behind and 
uh, Rios reports to Picard that he's no longer in control of the ship. And the queen says, move backwards to go forward. Which... Continuing weirdnesses of her statements. Then she goes, shatter to mend. The past is now. She's definitely mental. The The queen is just a wreck. Broken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She needs a good reboot. Um, <laughs> she blue screened. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so they all scramble to take like uh, stations and secure themselves. And then we see them zipping along the surface of the sun. They go under a solar flare. Very reminiscent of Star Trek four. Lovely scene. Mm-hmm. And then we get this whole little montage of them slowly waking up and coming to. And it's again, very reminiscent of Star Trek four. Well done. And so th- this was the part that I was trying to grasp. I know they did it in Star Trek four, but is it going at warp? around around the sun to me that's i don't know seems like that could cause a lot of issues and that they would go too fast because you know how long does it take light to go around the sun once uh i mean it takes seven minutes for light to get from the sun to earth with the size of the sun i would i would think that they're spinning around that bitch like real fast. They're going around it hundreds, yeah. if not thousands of times. So for sure. Which is, it seems ridiculous to me, but. Well, that's why they needed the heavy computing power of something like the Borg Queen to figure out exactly when to do it, what speed, what angle, when to disengage, all that. And they're, but to get it to work, you're above warp one, I would imagine. Like uh, the, the Bird of Prey in Star Trek 8, I think is as fast as the Bird eight. of Prey got. I Correct me here in the comments, please. But I, I'd have to rewatch to be sure. But I thought it was warped eight. No, nine. They, they were. They got up they to got about nine point two, nine point three. Yeah. On the first time, but when they were coming back with the whales, they were doing it slower because they had the extra mass. Remember? Sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah either way. Interesting little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, they have to go real fast to make this work, and they have to pull out at just the right moment. Uh, but when they do so. Uh, they were not in the greatest of shape. The ship, the La Sirena, was pretty wrecked from combat and from this warp jump, or like this time jump. Yep. Uh, so they couldn't be sure when exactly they were. The chronometer was shot. Uh, there was no colony on the moon. There were signs of ozone layer depletion, but no nuclear fallout. So, you know, post 1970s tetrafluoroethylene lead and such. Yeah. But now, but not before the second, the third world war cool so they've got they're roughly in the right area and then the ship starts to lose control and they start falling towards earth uh pretty scary moment <laughs> yeah and so uh she what was i going to say it, it was uh, not so much landing as controlled crashing yeah <laughs> what is what is said and targeted crashing that's what right targeted crashing so uh, so basically the, the ship zips around the sun at high warp, comes out of it going straight to Earth, and they they still had no, okay, they had no control of the ship, really. So they're going off slingshot speed, uh, heading towards, towards Earth, but in that time they were able to determine they're at least close or right about where they needed to be. Um, so 
Yeah. Yeah. So we get this cool little discussion about like whether where they should land or where they where they should crash. And the idea, as uh, Rafi points out or Gerardi points out, that crashing in Los Angeles is a real bad idea. One of the most heavily populated cities of the era. Not an so option. So anybody have any better ideas? And Picard goes, uh, "Give me manual control." He's going to take them home. So we can presume that they crashed in France, though it's never super clear. I thought I saw in the background. Tell me if I'm wrong but was uh, seeing the 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 building that was chateau picard it, it looked like i was looking at that same home i agree i'm not 100 percent sure because it was very dark and the lights yeah. were off in the building but i agree that's what i thought that he did as well but yes yeah, super unclear but i think that that's exactly where they went but why even bring it down anywhere where there would be a chance to be around people anything. where else are you gonna go a house find a forest like a huge forest that you did once so there you was stop a, you're still in they, it they crashed through a forest we saw that in the landing i mean there are so labar france which is where chateau picard is is not exactly mm-hmm. a big city it's a small town sure especially in the 21st century small town so maybe it's just a matter of like there's no one looking here now that being said it's a little in it's a little implausible for me that something like La Sirena crashing through the atmosphere isn't going to get picked up by someone's military radar somewhere. Yes. Uh, it'll, it'll probably set off like ICBM alerts everywhere from NORAD to China. So yeah, because it, it didn't cloak like the bird of prey in Star Trek four did. And, and you're that saying was that, 40 years earlier. Yes. Yes. This, this should have been detected by everything. Yeah. So either way, they land, mm-hmm. they crash. Uh, they had to choose some place where they could at least like survive because the ship's own environmental controls were all shit. So they needed to go somewhere where they could find maybe things to repair, maybe things to like survive. So they couldn't just pick like the middle of the Sahara or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. They would not have survived there. No. Okay, so at this point, though, we switch back to Rafi complaining that the bio bed is out of power. That's the only thing keeping Elnor alive. They need power, uh, but they can't because all power is being siphoned by the Borg Queen into her systems to keep herself alive. Uh, so they start talking about like disconnecting her. They can't in time. Uh, so somebody pulls out a phaser and Picard stops him saying that they need her alive to plot the return trip. Okay. Well, that's fair. Yeah, they've got to get back. And so why would I think that's very reactionary of Rios. I assume that he was under perfect understanding that the Boar Queen was the only one that could get them there and back. So he was willing to just about strand them in time, basically have them stuck in 2024 if he hadn't been stopped. Yeah, but he's thinking of Elnor, right? His yes. friend that his wife he's trying to save, and he doesn't trust the Borg Queen, and she's plugged herself into his ship without like controls or limitations, and she's draining the power from the ship. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like he had some very reasonable ideas as to why to do this, but he's willing to listen to Picard. I'm yeah. not sure I would have. I'm not sure if it'd been me, I wouldn't have shot her. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I'm That's good honestly stranded in the past is something that Picard and his crew have discussed other times. Like remember in first contact, they're like, find a nice quiet place and sad history's way. Yes. Something similar here might've worked too. Yep. So in our next scene, then we cut back to Elnor and Rafi, uh, in the sick bay and, uh, Rafi is 
receiving a medallion from the Kalat Malat that Elnor had. Uh, he told her to take it, and she reads it, and it's in Romulan, and it translates essentially to now is the only moment. And then she turns, she says it's beautiful, and then she turns to look at Elnor to talk about it, and he's dead. So Elnor has died. Okay, so I think, I hope that we didn't, at, at the conclusion of the season, that somehow they fix and change things where our space Legolas comes back because I am, I'm not liking this losing Elnor. I don't know. I'm going to wait and see what happens, but. I do think it's funny though, that with our previous review for the discovery episode finale, we were talking yep. about how they had no consequences to their actions essentially. Whereas here we're seeing something that we don't know if it's a permanent consequence. We don't know if he's going to come back. The characters don't know if he's going to come back. So oh. there's some wonder there. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting way to, to kill off the character. Cause he's going to, he would have had trouble on 2024 earth. Right. And you did predict the, this. The headband thing around like they did with Spock would have been a little too much on the nose. Oh, a beanie on him all the time? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, beanie. Uh, so what, what What did I predict? You to... predicted that. So in our last, I don't know if you recorded this as part of the episode, but you were discussing about how Elnor didn't show up in any of the trailers after like the oh, first episode. Oh, yes. Episodes. That's right. I I thought that it was a little suspicious. peculiar. Yeah. yeah. A little, little suspicious. He it was the uh, the season trailer like for the the whole season and there there was nothing that was shown of him beyond the uh, the thing that happened in Okinawa which didn't know that that's what it was at the time but i i, I noticed a very specific lack of Elnor and i just i had a bad feeling about it and looks I'm like it you. was justified <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, you definitely called that one. Uh, what I will say, though, is that it's probably for the best that his character wasn't on Earth in the 2024. His inability to deceive his yes. absolute candor would have gotten him in real trouble, especially if he can't answer questions like, where are you from? What they are you left him on the ship on the La Serena like they did with uh you know picard and uh Girardi i right I, I guess but he's more of the action type i don't know if he would have had any sort of purpose by staying on the ship and he true. would have gone wherever raffi goes for sure also true okay yeah so that really there was there wasn't anywhere for him in this in this plot line so yeah i, I fear that he is gone gone all right so uh raffi takes elnor's body places him in the ship's morgue uh, Picard gives this line of if we fail here we fail Elnor and everyone in our home world where he really meant is everyone in our home timeline or home universe mm -hmm. very true uh, but Rafi is mad and Seven is pissed too right Seven tells him you should have let Rio shoot the, qu the queen uh, Picard argues that the queen is the only one who knows about their fissure in time and they were helpless until she was revived uh, Rafi is like uh, uh, continuing her anger, reasonable anger about like yeah. letting him stay behind and nurse the queen back to life. Um, she is feeling not just sadness, but intense disappointment in leadership. And I mean, I get where Rafi's coming from on this. She had essentially treated Elnor like her adoptive son, but oh, yeah. let's remember Picard was also treating Elnor like an adoptive son, the son he never had. 
even though he was gone for from his life for quite some time mm -hmm. uh it was interesting bit we also get this story or this argument from raffi about how q and picard have jousted for decades and screw around with people's lives for sports but let's remember picard has no say in this matter this is all q is doing it is and i'm i think that raffi's <clears throat> emotions here are completely valid the way that she reacted and responded I to her, I'm glad that she's being depicted as the kind of officer that even though she's addressing an admiral, someone who is a friend, that your rank does not preclude you from my wrath. Uh, uh, kind of thing. She's and it's righteous like, wrath too, oh, right? Yeah. Like her whole thing about how I thought she be, was going to start throwing hands too. Maybe I thought I thought that that wasn't impossible. But the whole point that she makes about how like you're just faking having emotions, whereas the rest of us are living with them, mm -hmm. right? It was like, oh, okay. I don't know if that's an attack on the fact that he's a synth now, or if she really feels that way. But it was a little. It was definitely on the nose. That's oh yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a deep cut yeah. right there. And it's the, it's the, she doesn't, she knows about Q, totally aware of that. And I, I think part of that anger just comes from this frenemy rivalry thing. And well, not rivalry, but more of like a frenemy kind of thing. Q and Picard being known for, quote unquote, playing these games or engaging in, in these things where other people's lives are affected because Q is trying to teach a lesson. Yeah, it's it's definitely tough. And then Rafi turns and asks Jurati, like, if we fix time, will it bring Elnor back? Uh, and Jurati's like, I don't know. It's impossible she, to know. She tries to explain that maybe it's a temporal causality loop, and if they're outside of it, then it's possible, but she doesn't know. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a rough moment for all the characters here, for sure. Uh, then well, they bring up the fact that they have to go find this watcher who's somewhere in L.A. So that's going to help them restore the timeline. They think they don't know. They know that there's a watcher there. They don't know if the, the watcher is going to be their ally or their enemy in all this. Mm -hmm. But they're going to go find the the watcher for herself. And uh, Rafi just like storms off, not willing to wait to what the Q or sorry the Queen like recover from her bad shutdown no and she's got she's got every right to want to charge ahead in this mission because sitting around for her is not a good um not a good use of energy you know now now she's got this pent-up energy and anger and now doing something going out on this mission is it's going to be a whole hell of a lot better for her than sitting at, at a point like that. You've, I think you've got to dive right into work, just distract yourself from what's going on by getting into a task and doing it, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I don't want to equate this with losing like some, a character, like, uh, somebody as important to her as Eleanor was, but I tried doing that some once as well. This was 10 plus years ago. I was working at Best Buy in the Geek Squad at the time. And uh, I found out that morning that my dog had passed away um, from bloat, which is apparently a really painful way for a dog to go as well. Oh. Yeah, I 
I hadn't seen Becky in at that point for like a year and a half, but I loved that dog. She was my childhood dog. Right. Um, and she was only like seven years old, six or seven years old. So it still seemed pretty early for me. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very heartbroken about it. Um, but I was like, I'm going to go to work. I'm yeah. going to go to work and I'll be fine. And as soon as I got there, I told my boss that, you know, I would prefer to be away from customers today just in case, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a little, dis- I'm a little fraught with it, but I should be fine. And I made it about an hour and a half into my work day, setting up laptops. Just, I was, it's one of the things they do at Squad. They take laptops, they image them, they prep them for selling, whatever, Yep. whatever. That was what I was doing. And I see somebody walk in uh, with like a sight hound, like a, like a seeing eye dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dog looked nothing like Becky. It was like a big fluffy German shepherd and Becky was a Rhodesian Ridgeback. So no similarity whatsoever. But as soon as I saw like the person who'd walked in with, with his dog, like scratch its back or something along those lines, I broke down ugly crying. I was there trying yeah. to type in our credentials into these laptops and tears were just streaming down my face. My boss comes over and goes, go home. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the hours. Just go home. Get get some rest, right? Like come back in a couple of days. It's fine. You'll get paid. Just go home. And I was like, I can't. I need to do something. He goes, I don't care. You need to re- you need to you need to let this out. Don't try yeah. and force it in. So go go do something somewhere else, right? Like yep. this That's is a sign of good management. I was really happy for my boss afterwards. Like at the moment I was pissed that I was getting kicked out of the office, getting kicked out of work. Right. <laughs> right. I wanted something to do. I didn't want to be at home. Um, oh, yeah. He was right. He was very right. Um, he had another employee, two employees, actually two other geek squatters. One person drove with me and another person followed me so that the other guy would have a lift back to the office. My house was like 15, 20 minutes from, from, or from the store rather mm-hmm. was like 15 minutes, 20 minutes from the store. So two people came with me then they came back, but they wanted to make sure that I made it home and was like settled in. And then they went back and kept working. And uh, it was a very nice kindness from my boss at that point and from the other two uh, geek squatters. So it was really cool. I can understand your motivation there because working kind of takes your mind off of it, or at least you want to see if it will take your mind off things to focus on something else like you were doing with the repairing and and re-imaging. But, you know, and I think that's the first reaction that we all kind of do with, well, I would say that there's a decent portion of people that how they deal with loss is to throw themselves into work. You know, time off to grieve isn't going to, do me a whole lot of good. I've, I've got to be doing something because if I'm not doing something, I'm sitting here thinking about that same thing. So I, I can totally understand. Time, I was even a little embarrassed about it. I'm like, this is, it's a dog. It's my dog. It's a dog. It's mm-hmm. not like it's my mom or my grandmother that passed. Like I shouldn't No, It's perfectly reasonable to be totally distraught when a beloved pet dies. It's fine, Renzo. But I, but, yeah. but I didn't get that at the moment. Right. Like I was like, I just got to power through this. Right. Yeah. I was wrong. I I'm glad that people like were around to comfort me too. But so let's get back to the episode. That's awesome. Yes. Sorry. Sorry for the long-winded tangent there. Oh, no, don't be sorry for that. All right. So uh, the card specifically tells Seven and Rios uh, that Rafi is too emotionally invested in this. Somebody needs to stay with her. Uh, Gerardi tells Rios, you got to leave your phaser behind. If you lost it in the past, butterflies. Yeah. Which is just reference to the butterfly effect. One change 
uh, can change all of history again. So that could make it worse than the Confederation, right? A, a butterfly flapping its wings in China can China. cause a monsoon in the United States or something, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's it's a definite his, like trope of science fiction. It is a storyline that everybody needs to think about when they think about time travel stories. So yeah, it's it's good that she references it, and it's very good that Rios understands the reference too see the butterfly effect if you really want to see what the movie happens wasn't that great though uh, yeah, yeah you know i mean if i was channel surfing that was on i'd watch it but you know okay yeah. it's whatever anyways so they decided they're going to be traveling or beaming to los angeles but they have to leave all their advanced technology behind uh picard and Girardi will stay behind and try and revive the board queen um seven knows the borg better than picard or as well as picard remember she was the tertiary adjunct to unimatrix zero one so she was like the borg queen's secretary or like (laughs) she was first officer of the borg queen something something similar right yeah so here's the comparison right lakitas may have been a a general manager of like a remote store because he was the prime consort of that board cube yep but she spent 30 years with the queen like right alongside the queen or 20 something years alongside the queen mm-hmm. so she's got a different perspective she was working at corporate headquarters right whereas picard is <laughs> yeah. on one of the stores so i think that they should definitely have talked this through a bit more it's a little weird that seven's just letting picard take the lead on this even if he was senior management of one store one ship equivalent yes because to me it, it seems like they're making Picard out to be the one that has at this point, the most intimate knowledge of the Borg from his experience being assimilated and on a Borg cube for what? Three days. Yeah. And whereas seven spent pretty much the majority of her life from childhood up to adulthood in it. So, but I, again, I think when it comes to, the uh the execution of the plot and you had to pick okay who, who do you want to see out there in la for the mission okay all right I, again i get it yeah no objections on it really. right it's just i just think that they should have had a bit more talk about this right because these are probably yes. the two people in starfleet that understand the borg the best yep i'm sure that there are other xbs in starfleet all around or a few of them at the very least right mm-hmm. but she spent her whole life there and was very high up next to the queen and locutus was a big fucking deal so yeah yeah, it makes sense that they should have talked about this maybe come to an agreement about how to do this uh and then we get this lovely little bit of recap by rios and i love rios i really love his character but he literally sums up the situation as you're going to try to revive a board queen that could kill us all we're going to beam from a ship with no power and we're going to find a watcher that may or may not exist all at the same time. Yes. Uh, and Picard's like, that's essentially it. And then he tells him, go to work, which is a good catchphrase of Picard's that he's used a few times. Yes. And I like Rios too. And that he's, he's the one that I like being grounded in the situation of you expect us to do this when all we have to work with is a ball of rubber bands and some twigs basically But if anybody can macgyver it i'm sure it's him oh yeah yeah absolutely we had to run in his his own ship for so long 
So uh, Gerardi uh, then scans the board queen uh, and concludes that she's in there somewhere. Uh, her communication center is lighting up, so she's trying to talk, but she can't find a way to speak. Um, mm -hmm. He explains that Borg audible, that the, the Borg collective consciousness is very audible, but it doesn't actually necessarily need to speak. So the Borg queen, he hypothesizes, is trying to talk to the collective, but the collective is not here. Mm -hmm. So what they need to do is try and like get her out of her locked phase uh, is to give her someone to go in and repair things in her brain or in her in her subconscious. Right. So Picard gives this little anecdote about how when he was collected to the, to the collective, uh, it was euphoria, but no sense of self. Uh, Gerardi then goes, well, be low cutest for a bit, connect inside, fix her up, and we can, let's go. And Picard goes, now she knows my mind. I'll be assimilated in seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't mean like physical assimilation. They don't mean the tubules. They don't mean the nanoprobes. They just mean the mental reconfiguration that happens as a result. Well, and she makes a she makes it sound like it's something that you can just do, like not a big deal. Just be assimilated for a little bit. I would think that's a lot more dangerous than kind of the nonchalant way that she described. I agree. It. I agree. And so does Picard, right? Like mm -hmm. Picard is like, this is a very serious thing, Agnes. What are you, what are you thinking? But I think her idea is just that they have no choice. They have no alternative. So if Picard cannot do it, cause it won't, he won't last long enough. She doesn't know my mind. I may as well give it a shot. Good point. Yeah. So now she's the only option. Yeah. I mean, seven clearly couldn't do it either. Um, Rios, for the same reason. Right, for the same reason. Rios might be able to, and Rafi is too emotionally compromised, uh, but Rios is now going to be on this away mission, we'll call it. So it's just left to her. And that's another thing that if you're in this time period, I think who left were the perfect ones. I couldn't see Gerardi being able to handle herself in 2024 out in the public any more than Elnor would have. I don't know. I she feel would like... have been that awkward, like, I don't know. She would have, she would have stuck out like a sore thumb. But here's the other thing is her, her mind is, in my opinion, a lot more advanced than say Rios. I mean, she's just. Maybe, but I don't think she's very disciplined, right? Whereas Rios very much is. And I think that a disciplined mind that can compartmentalizes things better might've been able to hold off longer against the queen. Mm -hmm. So to be honest, I think that the person who would have been perfect for this task is Elnor. Hmm. If, if you could teach him how to hmm. do the repairs inside of her mind, mm -hmm. he is a very regimented, very disciplined mind. So if you can talk him through doing the repairs, then he's got the perfect brain for it. Okay. Never thought of Elnor. Alas, bro died. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, so besides that, it's also the fact that you have to know what you're doing inside of her subconscious to repair whatever has gone wrong. And Gerardi is a cyberneticist, so this is right up her alley. Yep. But yeah, so that is essentially where that scene ends. Picard refuses to allow Gerardi to plug herself into the Borg Queen. Again, it's not using a simulation nanoprobes her nanoprobes have been suppressed remember we heard that line from the second episode so this is just a mental connection it's like mm -hmm. mind meld to a borg yeah yeah not not being physically assimilated just your mind 
Yeah. Or the brain, okay. yeah. On the bridge, uh, Seven has rewritten power from life support to the transporters. They don't need life support. Let's be real. They're on an M-class planet for now called Earth. So Open the windows. Yeah, you can get air that way. You've got gravity from just being on the ground. Should be mm-hmm. fine. Uh, the the great line here is that Seven says that at the moment they were subcomputational, the ship itself, which Rios corrects is the technical term for for shit, which <laughs> I loved because... <laughs> Many a times I will summarize something that is very technical to somebody who is not technical is just saying it's fucked or it's yeah. barred, right? And they get the message. So something being for shit is the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then Rafi uh, lets out another little bit of rage here by saying that the power that is being routed to the transporters could have been used for Elnor uh, if only they'd gotten to it sooner. Well... Yeah, I I can't say that I could argue against that logic, but again, she is, and rightfully so, focused on the needs of the one. Uh, you know, being being higher than the needs of the many, uh, and so she just it's it's hard for her to grasp and accept that we couldn't save Elnor. If there was anyone we had to save, it was the Borg Queen, because again, she's the only one that can get us here. She's the only one that can get us back. Yeah, it's it's really it a sucks. tough choice for sure. All right, so at this point, uh, Rios notes that the rotational computers are, or computation is off, so if they try and beam over there, there's a chance they may not beam very near each other, so they'll have to find each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Musiker says that they're leaving in 10 minutes. Raf, or sorry, uh, Seven tries to slow her down. They had no idea where they had to go. Uh, but Rafi already has a plan. She's very quick on this one. She wants to go to the very top of what's called the Mark Ridge Industrial Tower. It's the tallest building in LA. And they can scan for alien technology, tachyon particles, anything that might stand out in LA. They can find it from there because of its vantage point. Uh, now, notable. The Markridge Industrial Tower is not a real building, but they right. did use a real building as its stand-in, and it is the real tallest building in LA. So they use the Wilshire Grand Center, which is the real building. Okay. Uh, I presume they just couldn't get the rights to the name. Uh, so. Okay, good point. But they yeah. didn't shoot in it. They did film inside of it. I, I'm surprised that you could film in it, but not have the rights to use the name. But I don't know all that corporate red tape. What yeah, who knows? That? Who knows the details? But that's what they—that's yeah. what the building was, which I think is a pretty neat detail that they actually show images and, from my understanding, is a shot inside of the tallest building. Uh, okay, Seven shares a, a worried look with Rios when Rafi like storms off. So they're gonna try and definitely keep her under control. They understand Picard's whole like she is emotionally compromised, right? So mm-hmm. they are good at that. So then they go off into like the the closet of the La Sirena and they're changing their outfits. Flip I clothes to blend yeah. in. I loved Rios's little line about how do I still look a fascist bastard? And she agrees, no, not a fascist anymore. <laughs> I yes. thought that was great. And I'm Rios so did too, because he smiled at that one. I'm so glad Seven has sense of humor now. That was a good one. But, but okay, but how convenient was it, again, that 
there were closets with clothing that just happened to get them to be able to pass as what, well, but you know what? Okay. So let me, let me backtrack on that. I was, I was talking to, to Ben, you remember Ben, my best friend who's an actor yep. um, out in LA. And we were talking about the Batman, you know, the new movie and how I like that in this movie, there, there were several scenes where Batman, he went into a nightclub looking for uh, the, the penguin. He's in his outfit, you know, to get there, he walks up to the door. Basically, Batman had no problems going to public places to get the job done at night. And I asked him, I said, you know, wouldn't that, it, something he told me was that in LA, the way people dress and, and all of that, like they don't even think twice about it so knowing that or not knowing that they could have they could have could have come out wearing anything and it just would have been like yeah it's la <laughs> yeah no uh, that that fits with my understanding of la as well especially different parts of la right mm -hmm. like if you're going to weho you can pretty much wear as much or as little as you want um <laughs> what i will say though is that the outfits they came up with weren't particularly stylish or timely they didn't look like 20 20 2024 outfits they just look like it could be from anyone playing yeah so pretty pretty generic what i thought was interesting about the scene though was the whole time that seven spent looking at herself in the mirror again same thing what we saw last episode where she's realizing that my implant is gone like she looks at her hand again like that is a big change for her remember uh in the last episode she was talking about how people still are apprehensive towards her because of the borg implants mm -hmm. and how that changes the way people treat her remember the borders on the la sirena from the last episode that were like uh you borg bitch where are you like yeah so like she has dealt with persecution as a result of being an xb and now she's not i've okay you know i'm not even gonna, gonna get to the real technical part but something that i kind of got trapped in was if this is the past of the prime timeline before the divergence to the, the fascist state wouldn't seven now be back to having her uh, now, you know what i hate time travel it's gonna give me a headache never mind the one that i'm really curious about though is you remember the the uh the star trek enterprise episode regeneration yeah there is a chunk of a borg sphere and at least a couple drones on earth right now for this episode in the south pole they didn't crash there until uh 2063. oh you're right that is later that yeah. is later yeah yeah, 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 yeah a little mind. later yeah, yeah you're right i was thinking the same thing but like oh yeah that's you're right, right. The time no 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 happen. you're totally right this is this is a good 40 years before then yep. okay never mind okay so let's go back then to the episode okay so seven is admiring her looks uh, Seven gets a com badge handed to her but from Gerardi, and so does Rios, and so does uh, Rafi. Um, it, it's the same com badge that the Confederation has been using, but it's uh, somehow modified, apparently, so it's less detectable. Mm -hmm. um, Seven tries to be a good friend to Rafi and talk about Elnor, but Rafi is certainly not ready. She wants to focus on fixing the timeline uh, rather than talk about how it felt to watch Elnor die which is reasonable. Sometimes people just aren't ready to talk. It's only been like 20 minutes since that happened anyways. So, well, and she could still hold out some hope that what they correct may somehow bring him back. 
because you don't know. Drati said she just don't know, don't know what would happen. Yeah. So she's Rafi at least has some hope going there, which gives her the motivation to do this and get this done, find the watcher and try to correct all these things. And, and if of anything, Q got him in that mess. He could bring Elnor back, right? If you were so inclined. I mean, we've seen several times where Q brings people back from the dead. So yeah, certainly within his power. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so Gerardi goes again to have the conversation with Picard about like partial assimilation. Uh, it's not a full assimilation. It's just partial. And Picard responds with a very good line of halfway to hell is still not a recommended destination. Uh, <laughs> the writing on this show has been fantastic. Like it almost has an Aaron Sorkin vibe to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. How quick they are in, in conversation. I really like it. Uh, okay. So part of the discussion in this scene is really interesting about how because she's unconscious, it's going to be she's not going to be assimilating at her full speed. She should have plenty of time. Um, and she's going to be leaving her subconscious behind inside of her body while her conscious mind is inside of the Borg trying to fix things. So as long as those things are separate, Gerardi can remain herself. Picard can talk to Gerardi through her subconscious that's going to remain in her body. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit scary, generally. Uh, the other part that starts to become very clear is that as you get the queen back online, her assimilation process is going to become faster too. So don't dawdle. And wouldn't this, uh, it didn't seem like when she had the, unless I blanked a mess, the, the tubule put in that it caused any pain. I mean, you take a, a needle, get a, a shot in the neck, that's going to hurt. I mean, what would it? I don't, I don't think it had any sort of like penetration of any kind. Just surface, like surface yeah. attachment. Hmm, okay. Like I said, it's right. it's kind of an equivalent to a mind meld, right? So yeah. it's it's just like a neural link, which we've seen before on Trek, right? Like the little one mm-hmm. that they put on picked on Chekhov to fix his brain after in Star Trek Four of all times. Yeah. Uh, right. So yeah, they can definitely do mind connections without actually piercing skin. So I'm okay. assuming that's all it was. Okay. Um, anyways, the whole discussion goes through, and Picard eventually agrees to let Gerardi do so. Um, but he's going to have to hear subconscious Gerardi talk about things like how she misses her first grade cat. So we can expect some (laughs) random messages out of Gerardi as this scene goes on. They're warning us. As if the randomness in a normal circumstance wasn't enough. Now it's going to be actually. I love Allison Pill. She's so good. Yeah. All right. So cut to our next scene and it's uh, Rafi, Seven and Rios uh, all standing on the transporter uh, to beam out. Picard wishes them luck before reminding them that they are there just to find the watcher. Don't interfere with the timeline. Everything you do has consequences. Then he slides the things and they beam away. Then he goes over and sits next to Gerardi plugs in the assimilation tubule on her neck. Again, no nanoprobes because she doesn't have any. And Gerardi goes like limp. <laughs> Picard starts staring at like the readings from the whole process in great interest, so. I still think it's risky, but that's I agree. Just me. I think they do too. They definitely think it's risky, but I don't think they have a choice. Nope. All right, so everybody materializes in Los Angeles. Uh, 
Rafi is like in a back alleyway and then just starts walking. Seven appears right next to a little kid who asks if she's a superhero and she goes, can you keep my secret? And the kid is like adorable the about it. Well, let's be real though. If she'd had her Borg implants, Kiddo would have been frightened. More than just seeing someone materialize out of nowhere. How many sci-fi movies or like action movies or superhero movies has that kid seen, right? Like, Yeah, no one believes the kid. Exactly. Yeah, I get it. Uh, she winks at the kid and like walks away. And then Rios materializes three stories up, crashes into like the fire escape, and then lands on the ground with blood coming out of his mouth and nose. So he had a bad time. His his fall was rough. I mean, it's like his chin bounced off of one part of that that railing. railing. Yeah. Why did he materialize up, up above the ground? So like the earth that? is round. Yeah. So as things rotate, things that would be on the ground get further away from the ground well yeah but they were they beamed out at the same time there was no uh, appreciable change in uh in distance targeting sensors weren't aligned they took a lot of damage they didn't have the power it was all kinds of fucked okay all right i don't know i don't have too much of an issue with it we've seen (laughs) we've seen transporters fuck up many a time oh yeah yeah so he's gonna Okay, yeah. He's going to be the one that fucks up the whole thing. I'm not so sure. Anyways, so Rios is picked up by uh, some folks. They take him to a medical facility for treatment. He doesn't want to go to an emergency room. He doesn't want to go to the police. He says no to the hospital. He is like semi-unconscious, and we see that his comm badge falls out of his bag where it's picked up by a little kid. Not his bag, out of his like his jacket. Pocket and jacket, it's, yeah. yeah. It's picked up by a little kid. Uh, that's kind of ominous for us, the audience, realizing that, but he doesn't know yet. Uh, it's so going to be the Chekhov yeah. of this whole thing. Rafi finds herself in a sanctuary district. Good callback to DS9. Um, seeing an advertisement on a wall uh, for a, a mission to Europa. So we know that this isn't quite our timeline because there's not going to be a mission to Europa in 2024. Or anytime soon. No. Maybe not even Mars. Right. Um, anyways, a dude comes up and holds her at gunpoint demanding her money. And she goes, ah, yeah currency she realizes that's what he's talking about she disarms him like a pro better yep. than she did even with the uh the confederate uh, troopers from before so knocks him out picks his wallet takes his cash <laughs> drops it on him and that's when seven finds her he gets mugged trying to mug her <laughs> he, she also knows how to disable a gun which was nice she Popped out yeah. what was in the chamber and popped off the slide. It was good. It was very She's nice. She's good at everything. She's badass. She's a great security officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, then that's when Seven shows up at that very moment to see her like picking through somebody's wallet. Uh, which is pretty funny that that's how they reunite. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about how they should, they, they've been calling for Rios, uh, but hasn't answered. So they're going to try tracking the comm badge. Uh, Rafi goes, nope, he's on his way. Let's just, let's just go to the plan and, uh, go to the, the, the tower. Uh, and let's not wait for Picard to wake the queen. Her highness. Her highness. Right. <laughs> Definitely some derision in how she says it. Yeah. Back on. Well, it, it, it's, it's seven, seven knows the queen enough that anyone who's trusting her is crazy. She has always been a backstabber or will do things to her 
to her own ends. And Seven's very untrusting of, of the queen. Sure, rightfully so, but I think this is part of that that whole lesson because she was she was all gung ho about destroy the, this Borg, the ship Borg ship, yeah, immediately uh, kill the queen when she showed up, all of that. I think Picard is pretty clear headed about this. I don't think he's trusting the queen at all. He just knows that for her to get what she wants, she yeah. needs to fix this timeline and then go back to her timeline, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's a uh, better the devil you know than the devil you don't kind of thing. Yes. So I don't know. I don't think the card has been like charmed by this board queen or anything like that. It's just a matter of like necessary evil. Necessary evil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense from Picard's perspective, right? Like he's done things with necessary evils many a times. Uh, he's not so principled that he's going to just like die instead of fixing a major problem. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, either way, we come back to La Sirena and uh, Girardi is still plugged in. Um, Picard asks if she's still Girardi and she responds in a very childish voice about the warm feelings and how she wanted to disobey Picard only out of spite, but only because she wishes that uh, Picard was her father. Uh, Picard is amused. He like has a grin on from all this. Um, they were diving into the deep end already kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the queen is making her way through Gerardi's mind, finding anger. And she expresses, and Gerardi expresses some of that anger. Then she finds sadness and she expresses some of that too. Um, but at the same time, Gerardi's consciousness is inside of the board queen. And we can see from the readout on the pad that she's slowly ticking up like progress on, on the queen's repairs. Yep. And she's going to get herself assimilated if she's not careful. Yeah, at the towards the, the so this whole scene is very interesting. It's it's mm-hmm. one of the best scenes in this episode um, about how each one is manipulating the other. And then at one point we get this whole like the queen's voice is speaking through Gerardi, whereas Gerardi's voice is speaking through the queen, right? That and was weird. Talk, yeah. And then Picard reaches to go unplug the tubule and then a hand grabs him. I think it was the queen's hand. And he asks, whose hand is this? And the queen answers, it's mine. Gerardi answers, it's mine. And then they both say it's ours. And that's when he unplugs it, right? Yeah, it's mine. It's mine. It's ours. (laughs) It was a very cool scene. Very well done. And I, I really liked how the, uh, the the changes in the emotions and mood was portrayed uh, for Girardi. I th- I think that was I really enjoyed that. I liked seeing those subtle. Okay, now we're in this door, and now I'm happy, and now I'm angry. I yeah. that's one scene I'd want to. I think I'm just going to watch again. I'm with you there. I also think that they did some interesting things with the lighting in that scene. Like they're the way that the shadows fall on characters is very yes. menacing, which is appropriate. Uh, but yeah, it was a very good scene. It, it shows off the acting range of both the queen and of Gerardi. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them did a kick-ass job in this scene in sounding both like innocent, but menacing. Right. Cause the queen is trying yeah. to come off as like, I'm just here for the ride kind of thing. So, but yeah, very good jobs for both actresses there. Uh, Annie Wershing being the board queen and Alison Pill being Gerardi in that. Yeah. So 
Very impressive. Okay. Uh, cut back to LA. Uh, Seven and Rafi arrive at the Markridge Tower and start to climb the heights. They go right into the building. They're stopped by a security guard and we get this another very funny, well-written scene about uh, how one of the colleagues of the guard had let us up, had let them up there before for their first date for a picture. And you don't want to be lamer than Kevin, do you? Fuck Kevin, right? Like I'm not lamer than Kevin. And uh, yeah, you're so calling they, the, uh, the uh, tall, the round, just fishing for something to, to get a name. Which, the most generic. Yeah. <laughs> I did like the whole like uh, seven kept calling it like a, a, a something. So, it wasn't a picture. She kept no. saying like uh, an image, a recorded image or something. Yeah. Um, I I wish because I'm I'm looking here on her memory alpha and they didn't. Oh, they don't have the. Yeah, she kept referring to it as anything but a picture, and Rafi was yeah. like, it's still a picture. <laughs> It's a picture, dear. Yeah, it was good. That was really funny. I like that scene too. Very the, quick. And the way she played it was, it was, it, it was very humorous. Like that's just her, her Borg part or experience was kicking in. And uh, that's what I like about that is the, the things that seven says now, not, not that it's slapstick comic relief, but just the fact that she, that's how she describes it to her. That's now, the picture. She I do want to say, uh -huh. considering the fact that we had the scene with the Sanctuary District a little while ago, I want to say that here we have a little bit of like a moment of like analyzing white privilege, right? Yes. So Seven starts to explain this whole thing, even though Rafi could have done so just as well, but they're making sure that Seven, this beautiful blonde woman, is the one explaining it, and the guard buys it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't want to dig too deep. I... It, I don't know if it was an intentional like analysis to this, but I could totally have seen that scene going differently if it had been Michael Burnham and Rafi going through that, right? Like two black women going through this and going meddling inside of a building that they don't have access to more complicated. Right. And I think that that's a, uh -huh. a good observation to make of this scene that seven is taking advantage of the fact that she is a beautiful white chick and like getting her way as a result. And I think she realizes it too. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that her realizing it is, is as much thing as the, the other part, which says absolutely right, is that it would be, it would have, the scene would have played out differently, just like how you said, uh, if it were, say, Michael and Rafi in that scene. And you're absolutely right. That, that could have been a much different scene. And... Well, remember, as the guard leaves, like seven goes to Rafi, like most strangers don't tend to like me. Right. Right. So I but think she's blonde, definitely picking it up. You know, very attractive. And you're you're right. I, I think that that was definitely kind of a, a a very subtle hint or realization that that, yes, this scene goes differently if Rafi's making the explanation than seven is or if it's Rafi and yeah uh, Michael Burnham in this case yeah all right so back to Rios Rios is being treated by a young doctor named Teresa 
Uh, she runs a free clinic that doesn't care about your immigration status. They don't ask for papers. They don't report to the authorities. He suffered a concussion and he has a dislocated hand. Um, and that he's like, just fucked him up real good. Yeah. I mean, she jokes about him and his career as a classical guitarist and uh, which is a cognition test, right? (laughs) She asks about his happiest childhood memory and he starts detailing about this great story about his mother worked at an academy, like we Starfleet Academy, and he snuck off and played with one of the simulators and then he beat all the top scores and then she yanks on his wrist and resets it while he's in the middle of telling the story. (laughs) That's the best way to to fix something like that. Get distracted and talking off classic. Yeah, every doctor does this to the to a kid, especially one who's like kind of like antsy. It's like, okay, well, tell me about something, and then as soon as you start talking, that's when they jab you with a needle Pop. or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was it was funny. She relocated the fingers in the hand. It was it was good. Uh, she also mentions that she's having his weird clothes all cleaned, uh, and asks him not to not to bleed on her scrubs. Oh, that was very thoughtful. And that's when he realizes that his com badge is missing. And this was this was where I got. I'm glad that Rios is the one that is in this situation because he's the one that I, I think would have the most difficult time improvising in a situation like this, and that he has to. And these curveballs keep getting thrown at him. First, he gets hurt falling when he gets beamed in he drops his combat which was the first thing they all said don't do was lose any of your your stuff your technology because it could cause huge issues so essentially he's in the circumstance where everything you're supposed to not do is happening to him yeah and i mean i feel like this is another situation where as rios's storyline goes on in this episode this could only have happened to him yeah. <laughs> yeah poor rios yeah he gets it rough all right uh our next scene is back on Markridge tower uh seven is talking about how the future that they're afraid of has already started to happen there's econ- uh, environmental damage there's wildfire burning out past the hollywood hills uh, maybe it's too late maybe maybe what starts the confederation has already happened uh, and Musiker Raffi is adamant that it won't. Uh, she detects a blip on her tricorder somewhere near MacArthur Park. Um, but just for a moment, then it was gone. Then she finally detects Rios's comm badge, but it seems like it's sending a message that might be in Morse code. <laughs> right, the kids just... Yeah, just tapping on it. So cut back to Teresa's clinic, and he's just playing it, making chirping sounds. Rios is now able to walk. In the previous scene, he tried to walk, failed. Now he's able to get it on his feet a little bit. And he tries to ask for it back from Ricardo, the little kid. But finders keepers, he says. Rios fails at arguing with this little kid because he responds with, well, if you took it from me, wouldn't that make you the thief? Right. So it's it's a good mm-hmm. little rhetorical back and forth. Everybody has knows one of those little kids who's an annoying little shit. I was yeah. one of those uh, that would try and talk circles around anything that you asked of them like that. So, well, and with as important as this is not only important, but timeline damaging. I'm just a little bit surprised that he 
entertain this kid on this. I think I would just kind of be like, kid, give me that or I will smack the shit out of you. Kind of I, not, I don't know if not that's smack work. the kid, but I, I mean, be like, give me that. That's mine. Yeah. I don't think that that's quite a family friendly for Star Trek enough. You're right. To be a kid. Yeah. Either way, he calls him a <laughs> little point. Vulcan. He calls him a little Vulcan for logically wanting to trade for something. And yeah. uh, you could have called him a Ferengi for being a trader. I was but, yeah, Ferengi would have been a better fit. But but he said logical. So when he yeah. said the word logical, Rios is immediately like, okay, so you're a Vulcan now. Yep. Whatever. Uh, he he sees a plate of peanut butter cookies and he grabs it, has one, marvels at the taste of real peanut butter. Uh, <laughs> And he's like offering to trade the plate to the kit. And that's when Teresa shows up and goes, no, no, no cookies for him. Uh, so he ruined the whole bartering. He, he almost had it. That's almost when he it. realizes that Ricardo is Teresa's son. Yeah. And then she makes another fantastic quippy one liner. Forget the guitar. You're a genius. <laughs> so uh, he got cock blocked by the mom trying to get his combat back. Mm hmm. So there's a little bit more conversation in Spanish here um, where if he didn't finish his homework, she wouldn't let him uh, go watch Rick and Morty. So now we know that Rick and Morty is canon in Star Trek. So Mike McMahon is now both leading a Star Trek show and his other show is mentioned in Star Trek canon. Yeah. All right. It's official now. Rick and Morty is part of Star Trek canon. Love that. And I, I'm sure <laughs> Mike McMahon is also like gushing at the reference yep. too. Well, he probably... Uh, you, don't you think he probably would have been the one suggested or it was like a I can't imagine a nice little surprise I think it was probably right. a little surprise okay <laughs> uh, but yeah so the kid responds back to his mom what's the big deal I just wanted one cookie and uh, he, she gets she gives him a bit of a death stare a very good ma, mom stare and uh, he goes off to go do whatever let me just tell you something as a parent I can tell you it's not just one that's how kids start bartering. It starts with one, and before you know it, what the hell's happened? You've had four cookies. It happens all the time. Yep. They're little Frankies, kids. Yep. So scene goes on. Uh, he brings back the clothes, or she gives Rios the clothes that he had on the weird clothes. Notably, weird. They're not perfect fits for this timeline. Cool, cool. Um, she, he starts to put it on, and then he asks for his comm badge back, but Teresa's like, Eh, we'll keep it up front so you don't steal anything. That's mm -hmm. fair. That's fair. Um, okay, back to La Sirena. And uh, Picard is putting a blanket over the unconscious Gerardi. Uh The queen goes, hello, Locutus, which was endlessly creepy. Yeah. Uh, which, again, brings me back to the point that we made in the first episode about how this queen calls him Locutus, but the one that was on the the ship that came through the green rift the stargazer yeah on the stargazer mm -hmm. called him picard so there's definitely yes. some difference there because every other borg we've ever seen has called him locutus so you you think that that's definitely a, a hint of something that that borg queen kept referring to him as picard i'm really yeah. curious to see if that distinction actually does play out as something that is 
it's too notable for it just to be something in passing right like she says bring me picard bring us picard picard will help us we need to picard etc it's always picard it's never Mm -hmm. like locutus right and the federation obviously knows who locutus is so yes all right okay make a note of that everyone that there is something peculiar about one queen calling him picard and the other one like everyone all other board calling him locutus Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, here we get more from the queen talking about how she had the strangest dream that her little p- companion uh, was in it. Um, Picard notes that the queen is way more uh, lucid, really. And uh, she confirms that the clarity of vision has been restored now that they're before the divergence, which confirms that they traveled back in time f- early enough that they didn't miss whatever was the change. So Seven's fears about it being too late, definitely wrong. So good detail there. Uh, Picard asks her about the Watcher and the Queen plays coy. Uh, If you want access to my innermost thoughts, you've got to give me something, put something on the table. And Picard replies that they just lost Elnor uh, because of her. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the Queen is very challenging and like, is this how you negotiate? Really? Do better. Picard asks her what she wants. She is again delightfully flippant here and goes, she wants legs eventually, as well as a chorus of thoughts to break the silence. But for starters, she'll settle for taking the ship. <laughs> I always found it very peculiar that the Borg Queen has the personality that she does. That manipulative. It's uh, seductive, seductive yeah. and coquettish, right? Like a co- she's a coquette. She's like toying with sexuality to get what she wants. Yeah. Uh, this is what we talked about a couple episodes ago, right? Remember how we talked about how the board queen tries to be sexy, but the sec- but the board queen in the first episode on the Stargazer, none of that. Well, there wasn't any time for that, right? But every board queen seems to try and turn it up a little. <laughs> Sure. I, I think given time, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I the point saying. is, this queen is definitely going back to the uh, manufacturer standard uh, yeah. on that setting. The seduct- seductress queen. Yep. Cut back to Teresa's clinic. Rios is dressed and ready to go. Um, and that's when uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement shows up and starts banging on the doors. Uh, she asks, or Teresa asks Rios to go help take some of her patients out the back to escape. Um, it's a very hectic scene. This is another moment where if it had been any character other than Rios in this situation, mm-hmm. it would have gone differently. I think yes. even Rafi would have been able to walk out of this without having been asked for her papers because um, she's not Hispanic. Uh, but the other problem is, is that she's black. Yeah, I get that. But Immigration and Customs Enforcement doesn't look for black folks. They primarily look for Hispanics, especially in a place like L.A. True, but they wouldn't pass on the opportunity to give her a hard time or bring in normal police officers that can question yeah. her. And Listen, Star Trek has like decided that, that uh, fuck the cops, right? Like that's, that's essentially what oh, this yeah. scene tells you. And it's very clear um, that these guys in particular are too aggressive, too mean, yeah. too, too much. Right. But oh, imagine yeah. if it had been seven here, she just walks on out. No issues. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. So it, this is definitely commentary on privilege of many levels. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, and a good I definitely thing. see the message that the writers are doing here. Yeah. Fuck the cops. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So come cut back to on the La Sirena. Uh, the queen calls it a simple exchange. The location of the watcher for the ship. Picard says, fuck off. Um, and then she challenges him with, would you like to sacrifice the future of countless others just for your own sake? And that's when Gerardi regains consciousness and uh, he explains that the plan worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole trick of the Borg Queen or the whole uh, she's bluffing here about this information yep. and Gerardi just deflates her uh, by saying uh, to dict- telling the computer to dictate a file labeled shit I stole from the Borg Queen. <laughs> And at that point, the board queen's like, wait, what the fuck did you do? What did you take? <laughs> you took it. It's gone. I love that. Um, and then like your memory is coordinates. a bunch of just, you know, file system folders and oh shit, I mean, my blackmail's gone. When you're cybernetic, I guess it kind of fits, right? Yep. I do think it's awesome that Gerardi spent enough time in her mind to both repair whatever damage was being repaired and also find this like innermost deep secret. That being said, if if I'd been Gerardi or how I would hope Gerardi approached this is you go in there, assess the situation, understand what the damage is, get the file that you want first because you know that she knows where the watcher is get that first before you start turning on any of her other systems so that her defenses are down when you take it yeah and then go and fix the rest right i think that that makes the most sense it's a very tron-esque approach to things yeah 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 it is and a lot of good wherewithal for Gerardi to, to do that she surprises you you never know she's always will surprise you uh, well, I mean, and what she named the file is exactly the kind of thing I would do. Shit yes. I stole from the Born Queen. Love it. <laughs> also, fun fact, the coordinates that are dictated by the computer actually do match up with MacArthur Park in L.A. They do. OK. Mm-hmm. So the watcher is, is in, in L.A. Park. Yeah, in well, LA. yeah, specifically in L.A., but definitely near yeah. that park. So good job there. Then we get this very uh, interesting moment where the Borg Queen tells Gerardi that she's done something more difficult and vastly more dangerous than you realized. You've managed to impress me. Uh, She looks, I don't know what emotion to ascribe to her face, but she both looks simultaneously happy and almost like turned on. Like it was very weird, like emotions on her face. Don't you think? It was weird enough to make me think that I might be close to getting on that, on that boat of Drati being the boar queen that we saw on the bridge of the uh, stargazer yeah not quite on that boat yet i'm like on the you know the gangway leading up to it walked a step closer but something something in there with with how she looked i wasn't sitting well for me like she's she could possibly be open to getting manipulated yeah there was one other good thing in the scene which i skipped over a second ago but at one point um when Gerardi thinks that they no longer need the queen active uh picard just threatens to turn her off which the queen dismisses as being like an idle threat but she gets she calls it a threat not that it's impossible for you to do so so i think that they do have the means to turn her off still 
uh, it's just not something that they would do, hence idle threat rather than impossible. So they do have some defenses against the Borg Queen at this point. Um, and the scene ends with Picard taking Gerardi away to get her away from the Borg Queen. And uh, Gerardi saying, I knew more. I definitely took more. There's more to this, right? But Picard assures her that, you know, we'll find a way or we'll find out in due, in due time. Yeah. So uh, back to Teresa's clinic. Uh, Rios is watching anxiously as the ice people are like interrogating Teresa. They are not being gentle. Like they're, they're pushing people. They are like smashing through the doors. Uh, so a very accurate portrayal of long of an ice raid. Yeah, ice for sure. Raid. Yeah. I mean, it's set in 2024, right? Imagine a, a hypothetical uh, nightmare scenario where Trump wins and God. right where Trump wins and he starts like doing tons of ice raids as president again. Right. This is yeah. well within the possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that is the dark timeline. Absolutely. Very dark timeline. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so Rios is concerned about Teresa and instead of running out the back like he was told to do, he decides to put on a doctor's lab coat go into the front and try and convince uh, the cops or the, the ice uh, folks that they need Teresa because of a compound fracture in the leg of a 13 year old kid who's bleeding on a table. Uh, the ice officer sees the bandages on his hands, uh, assumes he's a patient and arrests him, uh, twists his arms up behind him and puts handcuffs on him while his hand is still stint, like in a, in a stint, I think, uh, whatever, in a bandage. Definitely so, bandaged, yeah. I, I don't know if there was a, you know, the thing stint, but yeah, basically getting apprehended and, and roughed up in a, in a way that we are familiar with. And at this point, accustomed to seeing from any kind of law enforcement, any, anyone with two weeks of training and now has a badge and a gun uh, type here in this country. So very, very realistic portrayal that, that I'm seeing. Yep. So we cut to, or we got a little bit more in this scene uh, where the officer uh, arrests them both for obstruction of justice. Uh, Teresa asks in Spanish, I'm not sure if you're stupid or brave, um, but considering he has no ID or UHC card, the ICE officer goes, he's going to go with stupid. Um, the UHC card is another DS9 reference. That's what they used in the time travel episode past tense. Yes. So that's the, the, that is something that references back to what we expect to see in this timeline. So they're doing a lot of DS9 references here because this is exactly the same time as when Cisco and team traveled back into Earth's past too. Yeah, for the, the Bell riots. Mm -hmm. Do you know off the top of your head, um, what what year did Cisco, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look it up while you're going through the rest of the scene there. They were in 2024 as well. It was. Yeah. It was, okay. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, yeah, no, I you're think right. They it were took in place in September 2024. Yeah. Started I in San Francisco. That's what it was. That's what I was going to say. They were in San Francisco, though, whereas this is in LA. So a little bit of difference. It, right. But it, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're, they're definitely, well, it's the same setup in, in each. You've got people that are living in tents. Yeah. Sanctuary bridges. districts. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, both the same time. I mean, hypothetically, though it's not going to happen, they could probably go to San Francisco and find Cisco and team then. Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be badass as hell. Impossible <laughs> just because it's 
the logistics for it would be impossible, but yes. it'd be really cool. All right. And then uh, Rio says he's being dragged out by the ice officers. Here's his combat chirping on the desk and Picard is trying to make contact, but combat gets left behind. And the episode ends. It snuck up on me this so, time. I didn't like the fact that the episode ending snuck up on me again. <laughs> you don't like sneaky episodes, huh? No. Um, so so short. Rios has become our check off from Star Trek Four. He's corrupting the timeline, and how the hell he's going to get himself out of this? Don't know. But you haven't seen the trailer. No, I don't watch the trailers. Ah, okay. Nope. All right. All right. All I, right. I like to, <clears throat> I like to remain surprised, but here's what I find very interesting about the episode and what I like in the portrayals of this time they're in, in, in 2024 is you started with this, mentioning this when seven and Rafi were together, just at that thought and, um, that, seven being there being the one to explain the situation got them that 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 free pass you know there there wasn't a lot of questioning there rios being in this clinic like he was and then seeing the the other side of that just how minorities are treated so <clears throat> this episode if, if anything i think was a very realistic uh, portrayal of how our characters, the characters that are of different, <clears throat> excuse me, different race, uh, races and nationalities, how they were treated precisely how it would be if they found themselves in, in 2024 or, you know, or anywhere in our time. So I like that realism that the writers gave to this episode. Uh, just with the the undertones of current time that depending on on who you are what your what your race is determines how you're going to be treated by anyone with a badge and a taser or a badge and a gun or a gun whatever it is yeah that's exactly the case right like i, I like this exploration of the faults of the 21st century 2024 faults of our civilization right mm -hmm. Maybe we'll get some kind of Trump stand-in as part of the explanation for this. Maybe we won't. Please we know don't. That the, yeah, <laughs> don't put I mean, that in the universe. <laughs> don't. Yeah. Put that out. That'd be horrible. Well, it, remember what I said last week? I, I said I asked why 2024 of of all times uh, for the the setting of this episode, and I told you guys I said 2024 is the. Uh, next presidential election trump's talking about running again and oh he's running he's yeah. running oh yeah he's he's running so i i said that's that's where this this fascist state of the country comes from it's it happens with that it happens with his re-election and then you have a, a a safe and prosperous galaxy is a, a human human galaxy galaxy yep. which starts from the America uh, first, right? America first, quote unquote, uh, make America great again. So it's just a prediction on my you. part, but I, I think that, that that that's that's the key. I'm sure it probably won't be, but that's the key event that kicks off 
the divergence into that that timeline, the no. you know, the fascism and everything, it's with Trump getting there has been a rise in fascism across the West for like the last decade or so. Right. Like, it's yes. definitely something to keep your eyes on. This is a far larger topic than this little podcast, right. uh, but it's certainly something to, to realize. I did want to point out one fun thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the crew starts beaming into L.A., we get this really cool little montage just showing scenes of L.A. and they play a version of California Dreamin' over them doing so. I really like that they did that. It yeah. reminds me a lot of like just modern TV shows, like when NCIS does a, a show scene somewhere, they'll play a song when they're showing you where they are. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Stuff like that. Or, or criminal minds does the same thing. thought it was a really good idea to do that. Cause it sets, it reminds you of what the setting is like in 2024 while showing you like, this is what LA is like. Cause this isn't a show for just Americans. They got to remind everybody else too, what this is like. So it was good. And the song itself is catchy as hell. It's not the original version from the Mamas and the Papas, but it was a pretty good cover. It was a good touch. Yeah. Yeah. So So, uh, did you have any other final final thoughts on this episode? I've I've said my uh, piece. Overall, I thought it was a pretty good episode. I think it continues a lot of the same interesting questions that we've been seeing from the last two. It is a solid third episode for Picard. Um, I can't say it's my favorite of the season so far. Got so much to go, yes. but I did quite enjoy the episode. I think that the writing and the acting in this show has been chef's kiss, chef's kiss, top notch. Yes, I th- I think it has been. I really like the grounded in realism that they're keeping in this this time travel part, uh, very much like they did with with Star Trek Four. I think we're we're going to be making a lot of comparisons to to that movie with this one, just in the the time travel, how it's depicted, how that time period treats the different members of the crew, depending on the color of their skin. Well, let's not forget their accents too, right? It starts at four when Chekhov is asking for the location of the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. (laughs) While the Cold War is still going on? Yes. (laughs) I, at the time, people were probably afraid somebody's going to shoot him. Yeah. What's different though is the tone. That movie had yes. a very lighthearted tone. Mm-hmm. This has very much the opposite. This has like a very serious, introspective tone. So, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all goes. Yep, me too. All right. Well, another great episode. Another nice review. So, for those of you out there listening to us and and or watching us on our YouTube videos, we'll be back again every week reviewing Star Trek episodes. So for now, live long and prosper. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon and Anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S. Tam, Anne-Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of Beyond Trek Podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.